I invite you this morning to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 11. Luke, chapter 11. And this morning, we're going to spend our time in verses 14 through 23. Luke tells us in verse 14, Jesus was driving out a demon that was mute. When the demon left, the man who had been mute spoke, and the crowd was amazed. But some of them said, By Beelzebul, the prince of demons, he is driving out demons. Others tested him by asking him for a sign from heaven. Jesus knew their thoughts and said to them, Any kingdom divided against itself will be ruined, and a house divided against itself will fall. If Satan is divided against himself, how can his kingdom stand? I say this because you claim that I drive out demons by Beelzebul. Now, if I drive out demons by Beelzebul, by whom do your followers drive them out? So then, they will be your judges. But if I drive out demons by the finger of God, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. When a strong man, fully armed, guards his own house, his possessions are safe. But when someone stronger attacks and overpowers him, he takes away the armor in which the man trusted and divides up his plunder. Whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ your Son, your Messiah, our Savior. We thank you for his authority and power that was on display that day in Israel. A man was delivered from bondage to the power of Satan. His speech, his health were restored. And Father, through that event, you demonstrated that Jesus Christ is Lord and that he is the one who possesses all authority in heaven and in earth. So, Father, I pray that today as we work our way through these holy words, that you would open our eyes to see and believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Christ, the Son of the living God, and that by believing in him, we have life. Father, bless this time, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. What gives Jesus the right to tell Martha to stop working and come in and sit at Jesus' feet and listen to his words? How can Jesus make listening to his word the ultimate priority? Why should one adopt the attitude reflected in Jesus' model prayer that he gave to his disciples at the beginning of this chapter? What gives Jesus the right to give his disciples a model prayer for them to pray or to give his disciples a community prayer that binds them together under his leadership? What gives Jesus the right to call people to himself and say, follow me? Well, the answer is here in Luke eleven fourteen through 23. The miracles that Jesus is able to perform clearly show that he is not just another teacher. He's not just another rabbi. 
He's not just another prophet. The supernatural power of Jesus clearly demonstrates that he is unique and that he has authority over the forces of this world, both seen and unseen. The question is raised in our passage this morning as to where Jesus' authority comes from. No one could deny that Jesus performed miracles. It's interesting that as you read the Gospels, that was never in question. It was never in question whether or not Jesus actually performed miracles. Everyone knew it. His enemies knew it. The Pharisees, the Sadducees, the scribes, they knew it. His miracles were clearly on display. And so no one can deny that Jesus has performed great deeds, miraculous deeds. But where does that power come from? Where does his authority come from? That's what's at issue in our passage this morning. As Luke tells us the story, he really doesn't set it within any historical context or timeline. He doesn't tell us where this is or at what point in the life of Jesus this occurs. It appears that what Luke is doing at this point is he is arranging his gospel in more of a thematic fashion. And so he places this event here not necessarily because of when it happened in the ministry of the life of Jesus, but because of the questions that this event raises about who Jesus is and where his authority comes from. And so verse 14 tells us about an event in which Jesus comes across a man who is possessed with a demon. And apparently this demon possession also hindered the man's ability to speak. It says he was mute. And as soon as Jesus casts out the demon, he can speak. So in this particular instance, his physical limitation of being mute was directly related to his possession by a demon. Now, I just want to pause there and say, that's not necessarily the case every time. We should not automatically say every time someone has a physical disability that Satan or a demon is causing that, or even that it's caused by some sin in that person's life. Jesus' disciples made that mistake in John chapter 9 when they saw a blind man and said, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? And Jesus says, neither one. But this happened so that you would see the glory of God. And so whenever we see a physical limitation like this, this passage is not teaching us to look for a demon there. It's not necessarily the case, but in this case it is. And we know it is because the word of God tells us that it is. So this is revealed to us by scripture. And so this demon is putting a physical limitation on this man. According to Matthew's gospel, he's also blind. And so he has severe physical limitations That is, because of this demon possession, it's affecting his mind, but also his abilities to speak and uh, to see. And so Jesus comes and he casts out the demon. He drives him out by his authority and the man's limitations are immediately gone. Luke tells us that he can immediately speak. He's no longer mute. And the reaction of the crowd confirms that a miracle had taken place because it says at the end of verse 14 that the crowd was amazed. So there's no question that a miracle has taken place. 
They're all in amazement of the fact that this demon-possessed man is now free and he is able to speak. And so the entire crowd is amazed. But the key to this passage is that they do not all come to the same conclusion about how this happened. They all readily recognize that something miraculous has taken place, but the crowd is divided over how Jesus was able to do this incredible thing. According to verse 15, some of them said, By Beelzebul, the prince of demons, he is driving out demons. And then in verse 16, it says that others tested him by asking him for a sign from heaven. And so essentially we have two responses that Luke records here. One of those responses is a blasphemous response. Attributing to Jesus his authority coming from Satan. Attributing to him the forces of evil, his ability to cast out this demon. It's blasphemous, isn't it? But the other, the other response in verse 16 is basically a bunch of skeptics saying, we want to see more. Show us something extra. And so everyone acknowledged the miracle, but they came to different conclusions about what they had seen. Some in the crowd attributed Jesus' power to demonic influences. Luke doesn't tell us who these people were. He doesn't specifically describe them, but according to Matthew's gospel, they were Pharisees. And according to Mark's gospel, they were scribes from Jerusalem. And so they're religious leaders. They're part of the religious leadership that has continually doubted Jesus' authority, questioned his authority, tried to trip him up, tried to, to trap him, tried to get the people to turn away from him. And so they're accusing him of working in the power of Satan. And they use the term Beelzebul. They say, by Beelzebul, the prince of demons, he is casting out demons. The history of this word is interesting. There's really some debate about where this word comes from, but it appears that it's derived from the ancient Canaanite god Baal, Baal. As you can see that root there, Baal Zebub. And one definition of it is the Lord of the Flies, which comes from these ancient uh, Near Eastern deities and powers. But by the time of Jesus, it appears to have been kind of co-opted into a name or a title of Satan himself. Because they refer to Beelzebul, then they describe him as the prince of demons. And so this is essentially Satan. These religious leaders are ascribing to Jesus the power of Satan to do this work. But there's also a group that was skeptical. They didn't quite know what to think about what they had just seen. They seemed to be asking for more proof. They had just seen a man who had been possessed by a demon, freed from that demon, a man who is now able to speak, but they want more. Give us another sign. And by saying, show us a sign from heaven, they were clearly looking for something miraculous, something out of this world something supernatural. But Jesus' response is to reject their request for a sign. He's not going to give in to their demand. Jesus is not a genie in a lamp. 
He doesn't just respond to, hey, here's our three wishes. Show us a miracle. Show us something supernatural. Jesus doesn't do that. He's not a genie lamp. And as he told Satan during his temptation, he doesn't respond to those kinds of requests of testing God. And by the way, the people already have enough evidence, don't they? This isn't the first miracle that Jesus has done. And even if this were the only miracle that Jesus had done, they clearly were amazed. What do they want more for? They all saw the same miracle. Jesus just cast out a demon from a man and has enabled him to speak again. What more is needed? No more signs, but now you must believe. Let me make a side comment here about evidences in defending the faith. Sometimes using evidences, using arguments in defending the Christian faith, it's called apologetics. And when we encounter unbelievers, skeptical unbelievers who doubt the claims of Christianity, who maybe doubt the resurrection of Jesus or or doubt the, the miracles of Jesus, doubt that Jesus is right now reigning from heaven at the Lord's right hand. People doubt the truth claims of scripture. Sometimes we'll use arguments, historical arguments from archeology, span from history, scientific arguments, if they're doubting whether God created the world or not. And so we'll bring these historical and scientific arguments to, to bear on our witness to them for the gospel. And I think sometimes we as Christians are intimidated by skeptics who throw these questions at us and these doubts at us. And I think sometimes that we think that if we're going to be an effective witness for the gospel, that we have to have this like encyclopedic knowledge of historical data and scientific data so we can answer these objections and be a good apologist for the gospel. But here's the thing about skeptics. Whatever evidence you give them, they will always want more. Whatever evidence you provide, they will always want more. And and I'm not saying that there isn't a place in evangelism for the use of apologetics, for defending the faith. I think there is. But ultimately, one more piece of historical evidence, one more piece of scientific evidence is not going to convert an unbeliever. The only thing that can convert an unbeliever is the power of the gospel through the Holy Spirit. That's the only thing that can convert an unbeliever. In Romans 1.16, Paul doesn't say apologetics is the power of God into salvation. Using historical and scientific arguments is the power of God into salvation. The gospel is. The word of God is the power of God unto salvation. And so unbelieving skeptics, they will always want more evidence, but more evidence will not convert one sinner. The word of God by the power of the spirit will. And so the only thing that you need to know to be a witness for the gospel is the gospel and share the word and be faithful in doing it. And so these, this second group of people, these skeptics, they, they wanted evidence. They wanted more evidence. They wanted more signs. And Jesus says, you're not getting another one. You've had plenty of signs. You've had plenty of evidence. Now is the time to believe. And here's the choice before you. What I'm doing 
is either from Satan or it's of God. And so Jesus addresses the first of those options. What if I'm casting out demons by the power of Satan? He entertains that thought just for a moment, beginning in verse 17. Jesus knew their thoughts and he said to them, any kingdom divided against itself will be ruined and a house divided against itself will fall. If Satan is divided against himself, how can his kingdom stand? I say this because you claim that I drive out demons by Beelzebul. Now, if I drive out demons by Beelzebul, by whom do your followers drive them out? So then they will be your judges. What I think is ironic in this passage is that the skeptics wanted another sign. And in a way, they got another sign when Jesus knew their thoughts. They probably didn't see that. They didn't recognize that. They're saying this among themselves. They're not aware that Jesus knows what they're thinking. And Jesus says to them in argument, in logic against them, if a kingdom is divided against itself, it will be ruined. In other words, he's saying it makes no sense. Your argument makes no logical sense. You're saying that I'm casting out demons by the power of Satan. That's a ludicrous argument. He's saying, why would I do that? Why would Satan do that? Why would anybody work against himself, work against his own purposes? It's illogical. And so one argument against what they're saying is it just doesn't make any sense. It's an illogical argument. You don't have two factions within the same kingdom working against each other. If they are, it's going to fall. It's not going to stand. And then Jesus brings in another argument in verse number 19, when he says, if I drive out demons by Beelzebul, by whom do your followers drive them out? And apparently there were others who were seeking to cast out demons. And and we see other places in scripture in the gospels where we see evidence of this. Remember the time when John came to Jesus and said, we saw somebody else casting out demons in your name and we rebuked him. Jesus says, don't rebuke him. And so apparently there are others seeking to drive out demons by the power of God through the word of God. And essentially what Jesus is saying in verse number 19 is based on your argument that I'm casting out demons by the power of Satan. And if that same argument is applied to every person who tries to cast out a demon, then that means every person who is casting out a demon is doing so by the power of Satan. And that makes no sense. And so that argument that they, that they leveled against Jesus, they didn't level against anybody else. Anybody else, even of their own Pharisees or their teachers of the law, they would never level that argument against them. But they leveled it against Jesus. And he says, you're inconsistent, you're illogical. And so Jesus says, I'm not doing this by the power of Satan. Your argument makes no sense. And then in verse 20 comes kind of the the climax, the punch of the whole exchange here between Jesus and these people. But if I drive out demons by the finger of God, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. In other words, there there is a choice to be made here. 
There's no more sitting on the fence. There's, there's no more neutrality. Something has to be, a, a conclusion has to be made about where this power and authority is coming from. It's either Satan's power or it's God's power. You claim it's Satan's power, but that makes no sense. I'm saying to you, this is God's power. And if it is God's power, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. And he uses this phrase in verse number 20 that I think is intentional. By the finger of God. Now, God is a spirit, right? God, as spirit, does not have a physical body. This is an anthropomorphism. Ascribing to God a human quality, a physical quality. God literally doesn't have a finger. But this uh, metaphor was used to describe the power, the might of God. And it's often used in the sense of this is how mighty, this is how strong God is, that all he has to do is apply his finger. And it's done. His power is so great that all he has to do is bring his finger to bear on a situation and it is done. It is accomplished. And I think the use of the phrase is perhaps intentional because who's he? He's speaking to people who know the word of God, isn't he? He's speaking to Pharisees, to scribes. He's speaking to people who know the word of God, who know the Old Testament scriptures better than anyone probably who has ever lived. These scribes and Pharisees had large portions of the Old Testament memorized. And especially a prominent story like the 10 plagues of Egypt. They knew that passage frontwards and backwards. And so when Jesus says, what if I'm doing this by the finger of God? I can't help but imagine that their minds immediately jump back to Exodus chapter 8, where the magicians of Pharaoh are not able for the first time to duplicate what Moses and Aaron are able to do by the power of God. The whole story of the 10 plagues is essentially God versus the powers of evil. It's God versus false gods. It's God versus idols. It's really God versus Satan. And in God bringing his power to bear on Egypt shows that he is mightier. He is the only God. He is the God, the Lord of lords, the God of gods, and that none of these would-be false small g gods of Egypt can do anything in response to God's power. And in that first instance in which the magicians can do nothing through their magic arts to duplicate what Moses and Aaron are doing, their response is, this is the finger of God. We can't touch this. Everything we know, whatever satanic power has been helping us to this point, can't touch this. This is the finger of God. I think Jesus uses that phrase intentionally to show the forces of evil have no power here. God has power here. And God's power is working through me. And this is happening by the finger 
of God. It reminds me of Luke 10, verse 18, just a little while ago in the Gospel of Luke, when Jesus replied to his disciples that he sent out and they came back reporting that they had cast out demons. The power of demons was being made subject to them. Jesus replies to them in Luke 10, 18, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Satan is being subdued. Satan is being triumphed over. The power of God is dominant over the power of evil. This is happening by the finger of God. And Jesus brings that point home in verses 21 and 22 through an illustration, a parable. He says, when a strong man, fully armed, guards his own house, his possessions are safe. But when someone stronger attacks and overpowers him, he takes away the armor in which the man trusted and divides up his plunder. In other words, a man's house, a man's kingdom is fine until somebody more powerful comes and overpowers him. What's the illustration saying? It's saying now someone has come who is more powerful than Satan. Satan thinks his kingdom is is well guarded. Satan thinks his kingdom is secure. But Jesus is saying, I'm here by the finger of God. I'm here with the power of God. And I've come to remove Satan's armor. And I've, I've come to overthrow his house. And he's falling like lightning from heaven. Satan is being subdued. Satan is being thwarted. He's being overpowered. And through the, ultimately through the cross and the resurrection and the ascension of Jesus to the right hand of God, all powers and authorities and dominions are placed under his rule. He is the strong man who is stronger. And he comes to overpower. And he comes and he takes over and divides up the plunder. Jesus is the stronger one in verse 22. So I'm not doing this by the power of Satan. I'm doing this by the finger of God. That means that the kingdom of God has come to you. The kingdom of God, the rule of God is here. It's on display in front of you. And so now a choice must be made. Is Jesus performing miracles in the power of Satan or God? You're either with me or against me, which is why he says what he says in verse 23. Whoever is not with me is against me. And whoever does not gather with me scatters. He uses a farming analogy. He says, if you're helping me gather in the harvest, then you're with me. But if you're not with me, then you're working against me and you're scattering the harvest. You're making it difficult. You're ruining the harvest. If you're not with Jesus, you are against him. Our culture needs this message. Our culture needs this message. People complain all the time, and you hear it out there all the time in the world, in the media, that Christianity is exclusive. The exclusivity of the Christian faith. They say that we are narrow-minded. They say that we're exclusive. They say that we need to be more tolerant of other faiths and other ways to God. Jesus will not allow it. Exclusivity is inherent 
to the Christian message. It is a part of the Christian message. If you allow for another way to God, then through Jesus, you destroy the whole Christian message. The bottom line is this. You cannot be a Christian and allow for another way to God other than Jesus Christ. In this dialogue between Jesus and these skeptical Pharisees, Jesus clearly draws the line. And the choice is he, is, he either is who he says he is, the Messiah of God, or he's not. And everything he says is false. It reminds me of something that C.S. Lewis says. His, one of his classic expressions, C.S. Lewis said that Jesus is either a lunatic, a liar, or he is Lord. He's either crazy or he's intentionally deceiving or he's the Lord of the universe. What you cannot have is you cannot have Jesus is a great teacher. Jesus is a great prophet. Jesus is a great moral influencer, a model. You cannot have that. He's either Lord or he is to be rejected out of hand because he claimed for himself that he was the son of God and that he was operating in the power of God, the finger of God working through him. You can't say that he is a good teacher because if he wasn't the son of God, then he's a liar or he was absolutely out of his mind. But he wasn't, was he? He wasn't a liar. He was not crazy. He was in his fully right mind. In fact, he is of an infinitely perfect mind saying, I am sent from God. And so if you're not with me, you are against me. I'm grateful that we live in a country that allows for freedom of faith, freedom of religion. But there is a downside to that. The downside to that is it allows for a multitude of philosophies and isms and theologies to sell their goods in the marketplace of ideas. But just as it is when you walk into the store, not all tomatoes are created equal. So too, not all religions and isms and philosophies are created equal. We may have a multitude of ideas and religions to choose from, but that does not mean that they're all correct. It does not mean that they're all good. In fact, according to Jesus, only one of them is correct. Jesus says in John 14, 6, no one comes to the Father except through me because I am the way, the truth, and the life. There's only one door to God, and it is through Jesus. As Jesus said earlier in the Gospel of Luke, no one knows the Father except the Son, and he to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Jesus is the anointed one of God. You cannot sit on the fence. And so here's what this passage, I believe, is teaching us. Jesus is truly God's Messiah, and his authority is God's authority. So to ignore Jesus or to reject his authority is to reject God's salvation. So these Pharisees who said, you're doing this in the power of Satan, 
or these who said, we want more, give us another sign. They're rejecting Jesus. And Jesus says, if you're not with me, you're against me. And here's the thing that's sobering. If you're against Jesus, you're against God. And if you're against God, then you'll receive the condemnation of God on judgment day. There's only one way to the kingdom of God, and it's through the door of Jesus Christ. He's the Messiah. He's the Son of God. His authority is God's authority. He's the only way. And if you don't go through his door, then you reject God's salvation. So my prayer is that your eyes would be opened to see what those people there that day could not see. They could not see in Jesus the authority of God. I pray that the Spirit will open your eyes to see that. That you will see the authority of God in the person of Jesus Christ, that he is Lord and Savior. He's the only one. And that through him, you may have life. Let's bow in prayer together. Our Father, we thank you for the Lord Jesus, for the way that he clearly revealed you and your truth, your kingdom to the world. There were many in his day who could not see it because they were hard-hearted. They were skeptical. They were full of unbelief. Their eyes were closed to the truth. Father, we have the same today. In every age, we are naturally of our own accord blind to the truth and hardened to it. God, I pray that Jesus, the Son of God, would open our eyes today to see and believe. Lord, for those of us who have already had our eyes open to believe, God, we just thank you. We praise you for your glorious grace. And Father, if there's someone here that has not yet had their eyes of faith opened to see who Jesus is, Father, reveal him to them today. And we pray this in his name. Amen.